And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there from Sackville, New Brunswick, Kappa Chow. Thank you so much, Joe from Kappa Chow, for sending me this cassette. Punk as fuck, we heard. It's an amazing cassette. The packaging is incredible, too. And also, Joe, thank you so much for mailing it. Like, the, the letter that you mailed it in. I said the letter. It's an actual letter. The cassette is shoved in. Nardwar to Human Serviette. And it says Van Booger BC. Van Booger BC. And it actually caught to me. I love it. Thanks again. That was... Joe's contribution to the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Thank you, Joe. Joe's from the band Kappa Chow. And we heard Punk as Fuck by Kappa Chow from Sackville, New Brunswick. Today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Grant Lawrence, the author of The Lonely End of the Rink, and also the singer in the Schmugglers. Now, to prepare you for Grant Lawrence, gonna play a track by A.J. Thick, Alan Thick, the wondrous Bobby Orr. And in an interview with Grant Lawrence about his brand new book, The Lonely End of the Rink. All right. 
Listen to the story now. Wondrous Bobby, wondrous ways, wondrous all-star. It's interesting. You know, a lot of people have some things against Alan Thicke, and I have nothing against Alan Thicke at all, but inadvertently, I put it at the wrong speed. So let's correct that and put Alan Thicke at the correct speed, although some of you may think... That's the best speed for Alan Thicke. But here we go. Correct speed for Alan Thicke with the wondrous Bobby Orr. All right. Yeah. Listen to the story now. Wondrous Bobby, wondrous ways. Wondrous all-style when he plays. Born to be the nation's craze Wondrous by the wondrous ways He'll play a tune loud and long With a stick that can do no wrong Snare a pass, cruising by Zip right in and let it fly Precision plays can be found And the praise is all around He's got class and he's got speed He's got all the Bruins need Wondrous by the wondrous ways Wondrous all-star when he plays With a blazer to the twine Born for stardom, born to be great He was born to determine the bean town fate Born to be a strict handling whiz A take charge guy that knows his biz Born to be a sizzling threat A superstar improving yet Born to be the nation's grace Wondrous Bobby, wondrous way With a blazer to the twine He's born for stardom, born to be great He was born to determine the Beantown fate Born to be a stick handling whiz A take charge guy that knows his biz Born to be a sizzling threat A superstar improving, yeah Born to be the nation's craze Wondrous by the wondrous way Stick it on your tree There'll be a barbecue in heaven with 
singing another verse, but we got time. Who are you? Hello, this is Grant Lawrence back for part two of uh, my uh, 20. Now it's 2014 uh, Nardwar interview uh, uh, here on uh, CITR. Grant, welcome back to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Maybe you could explain to the people who you are and what exactly we're doing. As you mentioned, this is part two of our interview. You're Grant Lawrence from The Smugglers. You've written a new book. Please explain. Okay, sure. I've written uh, my second book. It came out in October. It's called uh, The Lonely End of the Rink, Confessions of a Reluctant Goalie. And uh, basically, when I was a kid, I was the the absolute um, anti-jock. And uh, it's basically my story about um, at one time really hating and fearing and loathing uh, anything to do with hockey and eventually um, accepting the game in my heart and uh, playing it on a, a beer league hockey team. And there's a lot of rock and roll involved. And speaking of rock and roll, we began by playing Shoney, Barbecue in Heaven. Please explain to people. And again, as I always say, there's a lot of pleasing and a lot of explaining and a lot of pleasuring and a lot of fucking and a lot of sucking and chucking when talking to Grant Lawrence. Shoney. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, Shoney is one of the truly bizarre hockey rock albums out there. And there's there's a lot of them out there, and I, I've had a lot of them. And you have, uh, you have asked to borrow the Shoney record, or I guess just take and keep and give to Alex Burroughs or Ron McLean or something over the years. And I have repeatedly said, oh, I don't have it. But it, it when I was moving it appeared and so i still have the shoney record and basically it is uh, a record by jim schoenfeld whose nickname was shoney and jim schoenfeld was a very tough uh, very tall blonde defenseman for the buffalo sabers for many years and uh, he went on to be uh, a coach and um i think he's still somewhere assistant coach somewhere in the league but in the, I guess, mid-1970s, he made uh, an album of piano ballads, which was so bizarre because uh, on the ice, he was very, very tough and uh, very big. And so he, he fought a lot of people. And then all of a sudden, he came out with this record where he's wearing a turtleneck, I believe, on the front cover and a suede jacket. And it's just totally surreal like you would assume it's some sort of like harvey said fisher-esque gag but it's it's earnest and heartfelt i think i mean maybe the joke's on us after all these years you mentioned piano ballads but i actually played barbecue in heaven which is more of like an upbeat punker probably the greatest punk song that shoney ever recorded although apparently he did a second lp as well called key of love so he wasn't a one album wonder oh i i had no idea that he did a second album Grant, no, your, no idea. Your book, The Lonely End of the Rink. Congratulations. I notice it's number one in BC bestsellers. What does it take to have a number one book in BC? And could you go number one across the country? Um, what, what does it take to put out a number one book in BC? Yes. Uh, just release it. Baha boom. <laughs> no, you. you um, you, you know, and it's funny, all these different sales charts all over the places. Uh, 
all over the place, I should say. You know, there's like there's like about five different national best-selling lists. There isn't any one definitive one, which which can be quite annoying. There's one in the Globe and Mail, which I've never been on. There's one in the Sun. This is the national list, and then there's this website that keeps track of all the national lists and all these different categories. And so the it's like it's called like. Uh, Canada book list or something like that. And that's the one that my publisher likes to look at because they really narrow the categories down. So uh, they can call things a national bestseller really quickly. So my book, this new one, uh, The Lonely Under the Rink, debuted at number three on the national bestsellers list uh, for nonfiction paperback Canadiana written by a white male from BC. So number three in that category. Ba-boom. But you are number one on the BC bestsellers. Congratulations. That's pretty yeah. amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I had an amazing run on that chart with uh, Adventures in Solitude where the first book was like number one on that list for like, I don't know, uh, something like, like eight, like 20 weeks or something like that. Um, th- this one is kind of fluctuating. I think it's been number one for three weeks. Uh, so it's, it's very flattering. And, and basically what that is, is it's all the independent bookstores in BC along with chapters and whatever else. Uh, and, and they report in and, and that's the chart. So yeah, it's pretty flattering. Grant, your book, Lonely End of the Rink, and we're speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of Lonely End of the Rink, mentions hockey and quite a bit about bullying as you were growing up. Did you encounter many of your jock enemies later in life? You mentioned encountering one of them, Angus, when he was on a breakaway and you were a goalie, and you are a goalie, on your hockey team. Did you encounter many of your jock enemies later in life? Uh, I have. Yes, I have. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, it's funny that they don't, uh, West Van, I guess lots of hometowns are kind of strange because people don't wander too far from our hometown, it seems. And so, yes, um, I have encountered many of them over the years and it's always traumatic. Uh, every, every single time it's traumatic. Like it, it bothers me to see them. Uh, some of them have changed and some of them are very nice now. And, you know, they've, they've gotten out of, uh, whatever, um, insecurities that they had. Clearly I haven't, but, um, they have, and some of them are really nice. Some of them are still jerks. Some of them, uh, you know, they they're oblivious. This is the other interesting thing is some of them are, I can tell they've just blocked out. Like they're oblivious to, to anything that may have happened in high school. I don't think they even know or remember. That's the key. I don't think a lot of them remember what they did or how they were. And I'm not, I don't bring it up with them. I just, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm relatively like, I don't say, Oh, you were an asshole to me in high school. I've had people do that to me. Um, and I'm like, okay, 30 years ago. But, uh, you know, I, I like, I forgive them all the rest of it. But if I face them on the ice at hockey, 
I, I take great pleasure in in stopping their shots because they're almost always forwards and they're almost always still pretty good. Um, and it is a great, great satisfaction to, to stop them, which I did. Maybe you can tell the people about Angus, name changed, who you stopped on a breakaway. Did this bully who bullied you in high school know it was you playing goal when you stopped him on a breakaway? No, that was one of the uh, most incre- seriously one of the most incredible moments of my entire life. Uh, this was the the Disney moment, and so basically, this guy uh, who I named Angus in the book, he uh, in in one night of my life, I mean, he kind of terrorized me throughout uh, high school and beyond. Actually, uh, one of the few that, that it kind of carried over after high school, but um, in one night, he punched me in the stomach, stole my beer and had sex with my girlfriend uh, and I had to watch in one night. And uh, he didn't know that I was watching, by the way. And so, and it didn't last long. But it was like he was, uh, it was, it was a horrible scene. It was like he was trying to uh, bust concrete with his, with his uh, Johnson. And so uh, later in life, uh, you know, I've seen this guy around a bit and he was just, just, like he just just stoked fear into my heart and later in life uh you know he's on this we playing in this outdoor hockey tournament and he used to be this huge huge guy and he's still pretty big but a lot of the muscle that was in his shoulders and chest is now kind of swivels around his his waist and i saw him at this outdoor hockey tournament uh, and he was down at the other end of the ice warming up with his team and i just freaked out I'm, i i all this fear came rushing back i couldn't believe it i was panicked having like an anxiety attack i wanted to leave but the good thing about playing goal is you're very uh you're you're in a costume you're wearing a mask no one can really see who you are now it does say lawrence on the back of my jersey but that clearly rang no bells and so in this tournament this guy uh instead of getting penalties what you get is a penalty shot so if, if say if one of my players slashes him that player doesn't go to the penalty box he uh he gets a penalty shot on me. And because this Angus guy was the best, still the best player, even now in his thirties or forties, we, we had to trip him and, and hook him. And so he got two penalty shots in very key moments of the game. I believe one late in the second period and one late in the third period that would have tied the game. We were winning three to two. And I stopped him both times in a highly dramatic diving save as he tried to deke to the backhand. And my team uh, freaked out and couldn't believe it. And But the thing is, is that I never said anything to him because we had the handshake afterwards. Never said anything to him. He didn't know who I was. It was just pure orgasmic Shakespearean irony that I knew the whole story and he didn't. Hockey punks, Grant, Boyd Devereaux, mentioned him in part one of the interview, but maybe again to some of the people that didn't hear that, he's a number one hockey punk, or is Felix the Cat the number one hockey punk? Uh, Yeah, I'd probably say that Felix the Cat, Pop Van, is the number one hockey punk. 
Um, because Boyd Devereaux is more into kind of stoner rock. He's more into like Black Mountain and he's into the Besner Lakes and he's into roots rock. Like he's into Cuff the Duke and, and stuff like that. Um, he's not so much into punk rock, but I remember Felix the Cat pop them when he played goal. Well, I remember you and I, uh, I believe it was you and I who, who I filmed it. Um, when Felix the Cat still played for the Tr- Toronto Maple Leafs, I believe, or I think that was it. And um, of course, he eventually became a Vancouver Canuck for a short time. But yeah, he was into Bad Religion, Pennywise. Well, the day glow abortions in the UK subs—that's what kind of put it over the top, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was it was pretty impressive uh, the the music that he was into. But sadly, as I recall. In the interview, he was very tight-lipped. He had gone through uh, the very, very sad uh, media brainwashing that goes on in the NHL, where players are basically uh, turned into like robots. And so, as I recall, he wasn't that forthcoming. But I, be- I remember Felix Cat Potvin taking extreme umbrage when you brought up. I think it was Alanis Morissette. Apparently, he was the inspiration for You Gotta Know by Alanis Morissette. But he refused to answer that question. Yeah, which basically verified that he was the inspiration. Or uh-huh. maybe I was asking about somebody that he knew that was inspiration. But yes, he did get a bit uptight, which I guess is kind of embarrassing. Like if you're a hardcore punk rocker into the Dayglo abortions and UK subs, and then now you're suddenly linked with Alanis Morissette, who was hot at that time, rock and roll wise, I guess it is kind of embarrassing, eh? I guess so, yeah. But that, I was I was surprised at how how turned off he was. I mean, maybe now he's retired. Who knows where the hell Felix Kapovan is? I don't think he's still in hockey, but he could be, he could be a goalie coach somewhere. But I mean, I wonder if he, you know, Googles himself. Is that interview online? No, I can't find it anywhere. Oh, it's not. So he can't see it. Grant, who are the other hockey punks mentioned boy Devereaux? Felix yeah. the Cat, any other that you've encountered? Because you've done Hockey Rock quite a bit on That's your right. CBC podcast and CBC Radio 3 show. Have you encountered any other hockey players that you've interviewed or encountered or even that have read your book, that have given you feedback, that are of the punk variety? Well, I got to say, it's really difficult to find them. Um, you know, we want to hope that hockey players like cool music and are cool guys. But the fact of the matter is 80 to 90, maybe 95% of them are totally mainstream good old boys who were the jocks in high school that we tried to avoid. But there is like a five to 10 percentile in the NHL who are cool laid back guys. I mean, boy Devereaux has got to be one of the, nicest guys and and wonderful things have have happened for him you know he's won the stanley cup and he's played with amazing players and uh you know uh theo flurry he's into real kind of outlaw country uh, and some some cool stuff there um you know like he mentioned 
like Reverend Horton heat to me. And I was really surprised to, to hear that. And, uh, and then, uh, I remember, you know, I remember going into the Canucks locker room when I was working on a hockey rock special for CBC and basically trying to will, uh, Matthias Oland and Marcus Nasland into admitting that they were hives fans or, or into the soundtrack of our lives or into any of those Swedish bands uh, at the time. And uh, they, they were just like, look, you know, we don't know who these bands are. Okay. Like we're, we're pretty boy hockey players. We, I'm sorry. You can't force us to be fans, but the hives did come to Vancouver once the twins were here. And the other guy, uh, the tall defenseman, I forget his name. Um, he's hurt right now. What's that guy's name? Edler? Tall th- yeah, Edler. Um, they actually, the twins and Edler were actually into the hives. So the hives actually skated with the Canucks probably about four years ago, maybe five years ago. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope there. But I guess probably the guy who kind of got it the most after Boyd Devereaux would have been Darren McCarty of the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, he actually had his own touring band called Grinder, And they were, I mean, you know, I mean, don't, you don't kid yourself. They were basically a hard rock grunge band, but they had elements of punk. Like they would do like Stooges covers or whatever. So they had, and I think they did like they, because they were from Detroit, they do like an MC five song or a Stooges song, but they were basically a hard rock band. But I talked to uh, Darren McCarty a few times and he was he he was really cool. He he played in the Exclaim Cup a couple of times, and and uh, he 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 understood. He got the whole thing. After Darren McCarty, Boyd Devereaux, uh, Boyd Devereaux told me that Brett Hull uh, had uh, good taste in music and always um, asked Boyd for uh, suggestions for cool music because basically, just like in any social situation. Uh, the alpha dog gets to control the music in the locker room. So uh, Boy Devereaux told me that most locker room music is some sort of totally mainstream. Uh, for a long, long time, it would have been hard rock, like ACDC, Zeppelin, now Nickelback, or it's totally mainstream gangster hip-hop. And any time Boy Devereaux would like slip on you know, uh, Black Mountain or Dan Mangan or Said the Whale or whatever, he'd be laughed out of the room and and he'd be ridiculed. And so, but Brett Hull would come up to him and say, hey, you know, I like that music. If, if you can, you know, write me down a list, I'd appreciate it. Grant, your book, The Lonely End of the Rink, contains lots of stories about Vancouver and also Canadian punk rockers playing hockey like canadian musicians playing hockey and yeah. you give many shouts out to chris page of camp radio what can you tell the people about people like chris page camp radio and the other canadian musicians that you've encountered in your hockey playing career well most of them the, the interesting thing about that phenomenon of uh and I, I do consider it a bit of a phenomenon of musicians that play hockey is 
the again like the majority of them were repulsed from hockey at some age like for me it was like i don't know 10 years old 12 years old um and but for some people uh, it, it was 17 or 20 or 16 or whatever but almost everyone got turned off of it at some point and then came back to the game to play it uh, on their own terms, like, like I have done with the Vancouver Flying Vs and so have my teammates. There are the, the rare exception are the, is the Canadian musician who has continued to play hockey throughout their entire life. And because they have, they're usually the best player. So Chris Page who for many, many thankless years was in a band called the Stan GT that toured uh, all over the place and just never really got the the accolades they deserved. Um, then he, he's now in a very cool band called Camp Radio. He's in a lot of solo stuff. He's from Ottawa. He never stopped playing hockey as a defenseman, and, and he's very, very, very good. He's one of the best defenseman uh, on a musician level that I've ever seen play. And the other guys that never stopped uh, were the, the guys from SNFU, not shy pig, uh, but um, the, the Belky brothers, uh, they even all those years of playing in a SNFU, they still continue to play hockey, which blows me away. And so I now play against one of the uh, Belky brothers, uh, who's on a team called the Bombers with members of the Odds and Skinny Puppy and Garnet Harry, ex-CITR alum. And, uh, and he, Bel- Belky is their best player, and he's, I think, tipping 50. And it's amazing. It's, it's incredible how these guys who continue to play are just so much better than the guys who took a long, long break while they were in their bands. Did you ever see Fecal Impact again? What happened to them? Did you change that band name? Yes, I did. I changed that band name. And I'll tell you that the actual band name was a band called Hemlock, and uh, which kind of fits more into – because Fecal Impact sounds kind of like a crazy punk rock band, like Anal Mucus. But um, uh, Fecal Impact that was actually uh, Hemlock, which – kind of makes more sense because they were a crazy druid Lord of the Rings, uh, bizarre prog psych band with this hockey roadie. Uh, and no, uh, we never saw them again, but we did hear from various people in the Maritimes that they did not appreciate, uh, the, let's say the, um, decades long, fallout from that incident i mean little did they know that i would be telling the story of that gig and essentially ridiculing them uh for well 20 years (laughs) but yes they're still around they're from saint john new brunswick and and uh uh, who knows where that hockey hockey uh roadie is but essentially for those listening, the story that Nardwar is referring to is this band that the smugglers played with in uh, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and they were terrible. And the roadie uh, punched me in the face while Fecal Impact slash Hemlock were playing their set. And 
kept trying to fight me for the rest of the night and was we stayed in the Prince Edward Island student dormitory and uh, some abandoned wing. And the guy was waiting outside at the bathroom. He was this huge, huge guy. And I was so scared. And I waited and waited and waited uh, in our room. And I had to pee desperately. So I ended up uh, opening up the window of our second floor a dorm room and peeing out the window. And I heard all this yelling below. And little did I know, but I was peeing right onto the windshield of fecal impact slash hemlocks van. And they had gone down to hot box it and they could see me in the window peeing. And as you know, once you start peeing, you can't stop. So I had to face a situation of um, either I uh, pull my penis into the dorm room and start peeing onto the floor and on various other members' beds and etc. Or I just keep peeing and try to redirect the pee. And so I did try to to redirect it, but that just ended up kind of um, kind of like industrial sprinkling. They thought I was trying to get it onto them. So it was a complete disaster. They ran upstairs. They were pounding on our door trying to actually break it down. And all the other smugglers woke up. They had all fallen asleep. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? And finally, um, I was so panicked that I ended up waking up all the guys at around five, maybe six in the morning. And we snuck out of the dorm and into our tour van and got the hell out of there. And you're Grant Lawrence from the rock and roll band The Smugglers, and that was about The Smugglers, author of the brand new book, The Lonely End of the Rink. Aside from the actual smugglers, the guys in the band, there also were people associated with The Smugglers, such as the roadie of The Smugglers. What happened with Scott T. and Billy Idol in Hamburg? Oh, my God. Uh, you know what? That is uh, Billy Idol. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes. I remember this story. I remember this story. Okay. I haven't heard, I haven't actually told this story in a long, long time. But, um, so Scott T used to tour with us all the time. And the only way, I mean, Scott T was just always horny, just always, always, always wanted action. And so uh, the, the only way he could get action in the United States where the smugglers were popular once we were on Lookout Records was to say, hey, I'm bees, because he looked just like our bassist. So a few times he, um, he had too much pork for just one fork by saying, I'm bees. And then so uh, we're, you know, bees wasn't too thrilled about that scenario. So once we got to Germany and the Netherlands where prostitution is legal, we said, look, it's, we'll tell you what, Scotty, uh, it, I think it was his birthday when we were in Hamburg. We said, we will get you a hooker for your birthday. And he goes, Oh, great. Now most, and most of us would say, uh, no, thank you. He was like, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. You know, it was like we had given him like an iTunes gift card. He was like, oh, great. That sounds awesome. So we we strolled the red light district in Hamburg and uh, we said to Scotty, you can take your pick. And so he chose this uh, really 
rather frightening woman. Now, if you've if you've ever been to the Reeperbahn in Hamburg, basically it's like walking past uh, the bay, uh, except all the mannequins are alive, and they're all uh, hookers, and they can uh, you can buy them. And go so you you can select essentially which hooker you want to have sex with by looking into the uh, into the window, and then you just kind of point at them, and then they gesture you forward, and you go into this little side door, and you go into their back parlor, and so that is what Scotty did with this girl, and they went upstairs to her parlor, and I believe you know we we thought we were being fairly generous. We gave. Scotty, I believe, 50 marks, because this was before the Euros, even before the Euros. So we gave him 50 marks, and we thought, well, that should be full meal deal, like anything he'd want. It turns out that all 50 marks was good for was for a hand job. And she, and, and apparently the, the hooker was fairly... Um, fairly rough and, um, you know, she's German, right? So she's fairly to the point and, and not that pleasant and, uh, and, and fairly orderly. And so she started barking at Scotty, you know, like, hurry up, you know, make it quick, you know, get a heart on. And so Scotty was, was concentrating desperately to, to try to fulfill this task. And, uh, he ended up. He was he was looking at the hooker, but um, she was just so incredibly um, not into it. Uh, like you know, like she was doing some sort of remedial chore. That Scotty said, "Well, I can't look at her. This is a major turnoff." So he started fantasizing about um, his his old girlfriend, and he he opened his eyes, uh, and then on the wall was a huge poster of Billy Idol. And Billy Idol, for whatever reason, uh, caused uh, Scotty to not let out a rebel yell, but more of like an anguished kind of whimper as his cock went completely flaccid in the hooker's hand. And he couldn't complete it. So... He gave her the, the, you know, he paid 50 marks for basically nothing. And he emerged from the the room like, I don't know, maybe f- 10 minutes later at the max. And he was, he was quite damaged. He was quite upset about it all. And I believe Bees gave him a hand job later that night to make him feel better. Ba-boom! And how close did that come to coming in the lonely end of the rink? Well, nowhere near at all, because there is no connection to hockey whatsoever to that story. And so, uh, no, there was... um, uh, That that was not going to make it in. It might make it in to the Smuggler's Book, though i got to say I hadn't thought of that story uh, in many, many years. Speaking of rock and rollers and stuff, and bands like The Smugglers, the band Chicks Dig It. That's a band that has a lot of hockey in it, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, the, the Chicks Dig It, do they have a lot of hockey players? Well, I guess specifically 
Chicks Dig It. Thought we would cut to Jerry oh. Cheevers by Chicks Dig It, because that's one of your fave hockey songs, right? Yeah. Now, there's an interesting story with this song. I, I KJ and I have remained uh, good friends, and um, KJ uh, wrote this song for Puck Rock Volume 1. Now, for whatever reason, uh, no Means No and the Handsome Brothers did not like Chicks Dig It. And I, it may have been uh, because on Chicks Dig It's first uh, tape slash album, they had a fairly a couple of fairly controversial songs, uh, one about wanting to hump your mom, and then another one about having HIV, and it just like you know they were teenagers, so they were writing s- songs about really stupid stuff. And but Chicks Dig It, you know, grew up and they were on Sub Pop Records and the whole deal. And they wrote this really cool song called "I Feel Like Jerry Cheevers." I got stitch marks on my heart, so an allusion to the most famous, arguably the most famous goalie mask of all time. Uh, the the uh, Jerry Cheever's goalie mask for the Boston Bruins, where there are stitch marks all over the mask. It just looks so cool. And the song is really good pop punk song, but the Hanson brothers rejected it, not only from Puck Rock Volume 1, but also Puck Rock Volume 2. Now, this put uh, the Hanson brothers' manager, Lori Mercer in a very, very awkward position because he was working with Chicks Dig It at the time as well, and he had promised, absolutely promised, that Chicks Dig It would be on that compilation. Now, uh, they did not end up on the compilation, and Chicks Dig It were furious uh, that Lori Mercer had blown it. And meanwhile, the smugglers... Uh, much, much, much worse song, Our Stanley Cup, made it onto the compilation, and this song didn't. So here we go with I Feel Like Jerry Cheever's Stitch Marks on My Heart by Chicks Dig It, as chosen by Grant Lawrence for this interview, Nardwar versus Grant Lawrence Part 2 on the Nardwar The Human Serviette Radio Show. Chicks Dig It! Feeling street 
and you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, what did we just hear right there? Uh, that was Chicks Dig It uh, with their song, uh, Jerry Cheever's Stitch Marks on My Heart, a tribute to the great Boston Bruins goalie of yore with his um, most famous goalie mask of all time, arguably. So, Grant, when mentioning the smugglers, back to the Flying Vs, can you mention the connection between the smugglers and the Flying Vs and hockey in your book, The Lonely End of the Rink? Like, a lot is talking about the Flying Vs. Yeah, the Flying Vs is the hockey team that I formed, and there was a few reasons for it. Um, One, uh, the smugglers were kind of winding down, and I kind of felt like I needed to do something new and different. And uh, number two, I had been... Uh, working at the CBC and I had been covering this exclaim hockey summit thing in Toronto, which was a lot of musicians playing hockey and the organizer, Tom Goodwin, who once managed the local rabbits and worked at exclaim magazine, um, used to say to me, well, you have got to go back to Vancouver and form a hockey team. And so, uh, I did, it was like a cross between slap shot and the commitments I asked around the Vancouver music scene and all these people said, yeah, you know, I want to play. I want to play. I want to play, you know, like uh, Bruce Dick, the original drummer from You Say Party, We Say Die, uh, Scott uh, Walker from the Saltines, Jeremy Bidnell from International Falls, Nick and Bees from the Smugglers. So uh, it it, it all, um, it kind of came together. And now the team is because it's mostly musicians, uh, we wanted to sort of pay tribute to the Vancouver Canucks. And I always loved the original Canucks logo of the stick in rink, which is difficult to see, but it's actually a conceptual C for Canucks. And I thought, oh, well, maybe we could put in a, uh, a Gibson flying V uh, instead, because I thought the Flying V's was kind of a classic name. And then there's also the the Flying V of geese in the Canadian sky. And uh, so it's it's like tribute to the Canucks, tribute to Canadiana, tribute to rock and roll. And uh, I have to thank Kyle Foggytown Fogden for designing our iconic logo. And I uh, really appreciate it. He's an entertainment lawyer and a musician himself and uh, no longer on the Flying V's, but a great guy. Wasn't your old high school classmate, Hugh Baker, somewhat responsible for convincing you to play ball hockey with Nick at your friend Rory's wedding? Uh, yeah, I didn't know it was at Rory's wedding. And then at that wedding, you started a bun fight and hit Rory's mom in the head. Yes, I did. Uh, so which story do you want to hear? All of them. Okay. Uh, So anyway, Hugh Baker got his girlfriend this hockey stick. And they said, okay, well, now that you have a hockey stick, let's play ball hockey. So they started playing ball hockey at this horrible little court at the Britannia School and Ice Rink outside. And then more and more people started joining, and Nick was playing from the Smugglers, and he he said uh, uh, that... um, you know, I should come out and play goal. So I, I started playing goal and that's what, and I hadn't played ball hockey goal since I was a little kid. So that's what slowly got us back into it. And then we, uh, one of the guys who played uh, John Silver, our captain also played 
uh, on ice. And he said, you know, we really got to take this to the ice. We got to play, play hockey on ice. So that's how we, we moved it to the ice. And, um, with, with the help of, uh, as I mentioned, the exclaim hockey summit inspiration that I could, you know, actually do it. The bun fight with Rory's mom. Right. Okay. So, uh, my good friends, uh, Julie Mengen from West Vancouver and uh, Rory Brown got married and they got married at, uh, some place on main street in Vancouver. And basically, uh, what happened was on all the tables, there was this massive bowl of buns, brown round buns, like about the size of, um, of a hard ball from baseball. And, and every single table had this huge bowl of buns and no one was really touching them. And the speeches were going on like really long and, uh, way too long. And the, the, the best man was this very pretentious fellow, uh, wearing a top hat, like a full on, like Victorian era black top hat. And I was getting very bored and I, I could see across the way a friend of mine, uh, also named Grant, Grant Galbraith, uh, was also sort of getting bored and kind of rolling his eyes at me. So what I did was I took uh, one of the buns from the bowl and I just threw it at him. But he ducked and the bun landed right in the cleavage of some wedding tart that was there, you know, some cousin of Rory's from Prince George or something like that. And, and the bun got lodged right in between her breasts. And the boyfriend of this woman was outraged, grabbed the bun from in between her breasts and whipped it back at me. Now I ducked and it hit some guy behind me in the back of the head and so he grabbed a bun and threw it, and within, I'd say, 30 seconds, the air was filled with flying brown buns all over the place. And there was a total melee, and that best man with the top hat was, was trying to, to calm everybody down. He was in the middle of it, and the, the top hat got knocked off, and, and buns are flying everywhere, and... And uh, I threw a, I threw a bun fairly hard at uh, Nick. He ducked, and it hit the uh, mother of the groom in the face. Uh, and she's never forgiven me. And the, the bun fight kept going, and finally the bun fight settled down. And when the dust had settled, I was wearing the the MC or the best man's top hat, and he whipped it off my head and placed on my head under the top hat was a bun sitting there perfectly. And, uh, and then the, the, you know, when, um, a coach in the NFL or the CFL, uh, wins a game and they, the players dump a gigantic bucket of, of Gatorade ice onto him. Well, at the end of this bun fight, uh, with an opposite sentiment, of those players with their coach, the groom's mother came up to me with a uh, bucket of garbage, like the garbage can for the, for the hall. And she dumped the garbage 
over my head and all over my suit and then said to me, uh, thanks for ruining my son's wedding. I met a guy at Red Cat Records. He was shopping at Red Cat Records who told me you were the first person he saw in recreational hockey with your team to Flying V's to argue with a ref and win. Do you know oh. what possibly he was alluding to? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Um, basically, I think what happened was <laughs> there was some... I, th- I think the, the the other team had scored, and I convinced the referee that it wasn't a goal, like that it had it had not crossed the goal line or, or some nonsense, or maybe I convinced her that the post was off or something like that. But I remember, uh, like I, I spoke, like because she she called it a goal, and. Uh, so this this referee uh, named Pat said, "Oh yeah, that's a goal." And uh, I said, "No, no, no, it's no goal. It's no goal." And the other team was like, "What are you talking about? The ref just said it was a goal. It's a goal." And I talked to her in the corner, and I talked to her for a while, and she reversed her call, saying, "Okay, the puck didn't cross the line. No goal." And the other team was totally and utterly outraged. Adam Migos Club and her speaker to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, also from the band The Schmugglers. Adam Migos, is that where you first encountered the jar? Uh, no, no, no. We didn't encounter the jar uh, until we played in uh, a punk rock bar in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's where we encountered the, the jar. And what's in the jar? Well, first of all, it was called the jizz jar, so that gives you a pretty good indication. But what happened was, um, when the smugglers would tour the United States, we'd very rarely stay in hotels. What we would do is we would ask the audience, hey, can we, is there anyone um, where we can, uh, anybody willing to put us up for the night? And uh, over the years, we'd have to say, hey, is there anyone willing to put us up for the night? Um, Anyone that, A, is not psychopathic, B, is not an illegal arms dealer, or C, does not live with barnyard animals in your home, because we had experienced all of that in the United States. And so, uh, but continually, we would still get crazy people. But uh, so this one house in Minneapolis, it was this really cool kind of art punk house where it was this massive old house with all these different rooms and about eight people living in it, just sort of transients coming and going. And they were train hoppers. They had a massive in their living room. They had a massive map of all of the freight lines in the United States and it it looked like a roadmap, but but different. It was just train tracks, and these kids would jump onto trains and ride them to various cities, and then eventually make it back to Minneapolis. It was unreal. And then so it's finally time to go to bed, and they said, "Well, okay, would anyone like a private room?" And we we would always want private rooms. You know, usually we'd be in the living room or you know, crowded together. 
So we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all want our private room. And he goes, okay, it's at the top of the stairs. And we looked up at the top of the stairs and it was just like a doorway, like no landing, just a door. And he said, that is the jizz chamber. And we said, what? What are you talking about, jizz chamber? So he said, well, let me show you. So he led us up there to the jizz chamber. And inside this tiny little attic room was a single bed. And at the foot of the bed was this old TV with a VCR, top loader VCR, and a stack of VHS tapes that were all porn. So the names of the, you know, it was like the little sperm maid shaving Ryan's privates, all sorts of movies like this. And then at the other end of the bed, uh, on the bedside table, there was a, a remote control and there was a fairly large Gatorade bottle that was like probably, I don't know, half, maybe a liter or something like that. And it was sort of half filled with uh, sort of a, almost like a green sort of jelly as a, this, this substance. And the guy said, okay, here's the deal for whoever wants to sleep here in the jizz chamber. You'll have your privacy. You do whatever you want to do. But the deal is if you sleep in this room, you have to sign the quote, guest book unquote and we're like well what, what are you talking about what 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 guest book i don't see a guest book and then he pointed to the gatorade bottle and he said uh you have to add to the collection it's uh essentially it was jizz and so you watch a porno and then you you sign the guest book by adding uh, this substance into the Gatorade bottle and their, their goal was simply to just fill it. And didn't a member of the smugglers help partake in fulfilling that goal? Well, yeah. I mean, so we all looked at each other, look, you know, we all kind of quietly looked around at each other and Dave shrugged and said, all right, well, good night guys. And uh, sort of pushed us out and shut the door. Winding up here with Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, you've been going on tour. You've been promoting your book. You booked your book tour. How did you book your book tour? Did you do it like the old way of doing book tours or record tours or rock and roll tours where you would mail out a fake demo tape of your band and the clubs would be like, oh, this band sounds great. We'll book you. Did you mail out fake books so people thought you were someone else so you'd be able to get your tour booked? Um, no, I'm actually of the age where, you know, that's how the smugglers used to do it was we'd send out tapes of the young, fresh fellows, or we'd send out tapes of mud honey and we'd just write the smugglers on the tape and uh, they're like, yeah, you guys are, or no, we also, one time we sent out a whole bunch of tapes of the hard rock miners and said it was us. And I remember a club, oh, what was it called? It was called like the Aeolian or something like that. And in Edmonton, the guy, after we finished the set, the guy held up the, uh, the cassette to us after we finished our set and said, you sound nothing like this cassette. And I said, oh, shit, that's really biting us. Because uh, we were just hoping the guy wouldn't be there. But uh, no, now with the book tour, 
actually have some legitimacy. You know, the books, people actually consider the books to be good and funny. So I don't really have to put up uh, any sort of smoke screen to get these gigs. Um, so, yeah, I just do it the old-fashioned way. Uh, I just email them myself. And, you know, it's still the same kind of deal. Like, you know, you hope people show up. People give you a million excuses why they can't show up. Um, you know, it's it, I toured in the winter. That's always risky for travel. Uh, you know, there was, I had to, you know, a couple of book events did badly because there were snowstorms where people just hunkered down. You how, know, was, how was Lefty's and Bruno's Art Bank in Bruno's Saskatchewan? Okay, well, Bruno's Art Bank is this really cool place started by a guy named Tyler Brett from uh, Vancouver, actually. And he moved to Bruno, Saskatchewan, middle of nowhere on the wide open prairie. Like, like d- d- crazy, crazy uh, owls in the family type landscape out there. And it's a one, uh, one street town, no stoplights. And there's this cool old stone royal bank that they turn into an arts bank, which is this neat little venue. And so I always wanted to play it because... You know, they've got like a Julie Dwyron bench and all this other cool stuff there. Tyler has moved to Sointula Island to do the same thing there. New people own the Bruno Arts Bank, so I went out there and did it. And that night, it was minus 47 degrees in Saskatchewan. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. And... The capacity of the Bruno Arts Bank is 20, 2-0. It was half full. That's not bad. It was not bad. Ten people on uh, in a minus 47-degree uh, night, and it was just absolutely crazy. And then uh, lefties, in that's a, a, a seafood restaurant in Parksville, and what they do is they say, okay, we got an author coming in. So they sell tickets. So you buy a ticket for dinner, and then you get to come in and have dinner. Uh, and then I do a little book presentation while people are having dessert. So that, it, it ain't no uh, playing the rat in Boston, that's for sure. Did anybody bring you any hockey records? People brought me all sorts of stuff. But not a lot of records. Uh, Chris Page from Camp Radio gave me a Canucks goalie tie, like an actual tie with a cartoon of a Canucks goalie on it from like the 80s, I guess. Um, Taylor Hall from the Edmonton Oilers, his mom showed up in Kingston and gave me a signed Taylor Hall rookie card. In Victoria, a member of the Broad Street Bullies Philadelphia Flyers hockey team showed up. He was wearing a backpack. And uh, he gave me a Bobby Orr rookie card. And so uh, it, it, was, um, it, it was quite amazing, uh, all the gifts that I received, but no hockey records, unfortunately. 
and you're still still listening to the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink. And I forgot to mention a little while back there, this is part two of our interview, isn't it, Grant? This is part uh, yes. two. Yeah, this is hour four of, uh, of this interview. Grant Lawrence, how did you win over Ron McLean? He gives you a great review of your brand new book, The Lonely End of the Rink. How did you win over Ron McLean? Two words. My wife, Jill Barber. Uh, and Ron McLean is a big Canadian roots music fan. And he is like, I, he goes to lots of gigs. Like, he will go to the Dakota Tavern. And he'll go to these various venues, like pretty, you know, pretty uh, lowbrow venues in Toronto. He will go and he will support bands. And he's a big fan of Jill's. And so uh, because he's friends with Jill and like they email and stuff, like my wife and Ron McLean email, um, because they're such good friends, uh, I was doing a a special on the CBC called sing for your song Canada, where we would get people to sing a song they wanted to hear. And Jill said, you should get Ron McLean to do it. So Jill asked him, said, Oh, my, my husband's doing this special. Would you sing on, on the show? And he said, yeah, sure. I'll do it. So I met him in Toronto in a studio and we got along. He's a really nice guy. And I told him that he's too hard on Alex Burroughs. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I kind of, you know, that, that was a bit of a mistake. And um, so we, we got along pretty well. And then uh, we stayed in touch. He, uh, during the Stanley Cup, the Canucks Stanley Cup run of 2011, uh, during the, the, the series with the Chicago Blackhawks, out of the blue, in the opening montage of Hockey Night in Canada, Ron McLean gave Jill and I a shout out on like millions and millions of people heard it and saw it. And so we thought, oh, that's really nice. And then so when I was putting this hockey book together, I just sent him a note. And I also sent Dave Hodge a note and he never wrote me back. And uh, Ron McLean said, yeah, sure. I'd love to read it. And he read it over a weekend in Muskoka and sent me back uh, the very nice uh, pull quote and th said that he, he liked it a lot. Grant, your two books, The Lonely End of the Rink and Adventures in Solitude, are nonfiction. Is your third book going to be fiction? Have you thought about writing fiction? Well, lots of people consider my first two books uh, fiction, but you're right, they are nonfiction. And uh, people call them novels, and what people don't understand is that novels are nonfiction. Uh, my books are memoirs. And uh, so, no, the third book is definitely not going to be fiction. Uh, it's going to be about the smugglers, but then again, I'm sure people will say it is fiction, uh, like Guys in My Band, for instance. And, uh, but. And speaking of fiction and the smugglers, could you please lastly tell the people about the flashlight? Well, how dare you categorize that story as fiction? I was joking. Oh, well, it is very, very, very true and very unfortunate. So you want that story to end with. Yes, if that's okay. We've been speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink. 
part two of my interview with Grant Lawrence of The Lonely End of the Rink. And yes, I realize that it is not fiction, that it is non-fiction, because there are some schmells involved. But I don't want to give it away, but there's some flashlight involved with the smugglers. All right. Okay, so the smugglers had just played Las Vegas. It was either Vegas or Reno, one of the two Nevada gambling cities. I think, I think it was Ve- no Vegas, maybe. And we were driving out of town, and when we would play Las Vegas and Reno, we'd often stay at Circus Circus, and, you know, there's this free buffet, which is, it's got to be the worst food on planet Earth. Like, just absolutely disgusting. And you'll catch every virus imaginable just by touching the tongs. But, of course, we ate there because it was free. And then we drink these incredibly terrible free gin and tonics while uh, nursing the the nickel slots. And... Uh, and and so this is how we would treat our bodies while we were in this horrible uh, place. And uh, and so when we finally left Vegas, our stomachs were just in, in terrible condition. And, you know, we often need gas when we're leaving town. So we, we stopped at uh, we stopped at this truck stop and we saw um, this huge lineup for the bathroom and the guy said, oh, let's, let's just go to another place. And I said, guys, uh, I'm, I'm suffering from an emergency, uh, like a Vegas emergency, and I need to use that bathroom like right now. And so I rarely ever do this, but I, it was such a bad uh, anal emergency that I went into the bathroom past all these other truckers. And I said, uh, look, I, I'm really sorry, guys. I'm really, really sorry. Uh, I've, I've, I have to use the toilet. There was only one toilet in this bathroom. And so they, they let me in. And, and amazingly, like to their credit, they let, like they were all these big burly truckers. And they let this total geek in glasses and probably like mauve jeans and like, uh, you know, uh, Converse sneakers into the bathroom. And so I got in there and just exploded in a torrent of violent Vegas diarrhea. And it was just a, just a total nightmare. And, and everyone heard it. And, and it was just so embarrassing. And so finally, I, I finished this tsunami of shit and you know they're all still waiting out there in this line and now i back uh, when the smugglers were touring i uh was pretty much relied upon to be the uh, van mechanic you know I'd, I'd keep the thing running with oil and transmission fluid and the whole deal and i would keep a mag flashlight in my breast pocket of my shirt. So if it was night, I could look under the hood and, and, you know, check things out. And when I finished in the bathroom, I turned around and looked at this horrible witch's brew that I had concocted from my ass. And I thought, oh, that's disgusting. 
And I, I leaned down to flush the toilet and the mag flashlight that was in my breast pocket slipped. It was brand new. I had just bought it. It was one of the most expensive things we had bought on tour. It was like $35. It bloop, fell into the toilet and, and fell to the bottom of the toilet bowl. And somehow, uh, when it hit the toilet bowl, it somehow turned on. So my brand new mag flashlight that I needed was illuminating uh, the toilet bowl from the bottom. And now I stared at this and the guys were like knocking on the door saying like, what's, what's going on in there? And I knew that if I flushed the toilet, that I, this could really screw up the toilet. I would lose my mag flashlight probably. And, but if I didn't flush the toilet, somebody else would come in and see this total mess. And not only would they see this mess, but in kind of Vegas fashion, Almost, it would be illuminated from the bottom in this weird, bizarre way of this flashlight uh, underwater. So what I did was I rolled up my sleeve and I shoved my hand into the toilet bowl that was filled with diarrhea up to my elbow. I went in and I pulled the mag flashlight out and I opened the door of the toilet stall. And by now there was like 15 truckers in the bathroom and they parted like a red neck sea. I was like Brown Moses. And it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. And I went over to the sink and it was one of those horrible sinks where if you turn the tap, uh, if you let it go, it immediately spins to off. And I, I washed there was no soap. I washed the as much poo as I could off of my uh, arm up to my elbow. And then I, I made a, a dash of shame back to the smuggler's van and said, go, go, go. We got to go. We got to go. Go right now. Go, go, go. And Dave just hit the gas. And within 15 minutes, we were out of the state of Nevada. Grant Lawrence, the author of The Lonely End of the Rink. Thank you so much for being on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show here again for the second time. This is part two of my interview with Grant Lawrence. Did an interview a little while back for your first book. Still available. Plug for your first book too, Grant. Thank you. Yes, Adventures in Solitude, still available on the BC Fairies gift shop, a dream come true to see the book uh, on that shelf for sure. And thank you for having me on the legendary Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show celebrating 25 years of broadcasting on CITR 101.9 FM. Wow. Thank you, Grant. Actually, I think it's even been a bit longer than that, perhaps. Yeah, maybe more like 27 years, but the uh, 25th anniversary went by without uh, a ton of accolades, so I just thought I'd get it out there. Well, I really appreciate the thank yous you give to all the different rock and rollers in your book, The Lonely End of the Rink, especially the evaporators. Thank you for the thank you there. You also give Grant a list of suggested listening for your book. And one of the songs you list, I want to end an Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show with here today, is something by A.J. Thick, the wondrous Bobby Orr, that if you listened way back at the beginning of part one of this interview, we did discuss. But since we're at the end of part two, and it was so 
long ago. Maybe you can tell the people what they're about to hear. A.J. Thick, the wonderful yeah, well, Bobby Orr. I mean, I said, you know, this show's been on for, for 25 years plus. I think this specific interview takes up about four of those years. Uh, but um, so this, this uh, song is by A.J. Thick. Uh, real name Alan Thick, uh, Jason Seaver of Growing Pains, and for whatever reason, he was the go-to guy in the seventies and eighties to write novelty hockey songs. And so he did uh, this Bobby Orr single, the A side. I think this is the A side, Wondrous Bobby Orr, and the B side is this bizarre spoken word thing called that Boston Dandy where it sounds like uh, Alan Thicke is like just way, way, way too into Bobby Orr. But um, the wondrous Bobby Orr is this crazy funk jam uh, that Alan Thicke kicks out. And he wrote the song, and apparently he plays the guitar on it, and the guitar is is pretty intense. And uh, so I think, oh, God, this one... I guess this is probably mid-70s, I believe. I'm not sure the exact year. But it's a crazy, crazy song written by Ottawa's own Alan Thicke. Well, thanks again for being on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show. Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, part one and part two interview with me, Nardwarta Human Serviette. If people want more information, not that they haven't got a lot of information with part one and part two, where can they get that? Uh, you can find it all, everything on my website, uh, grantlawrence.ca. I'm also on Twitter, just my name. Lawrence is in Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Grant Lawrence. And, uh, hey, I'm having a lot of fun on Instagram these days, too. But it's not Grant Lawrence on Instagram. That is a, uh, a sort of a metrosexual kid from Malibu, California, who posts a lot of shirtless selfies. That's not me. I'm a lot hairier than that kid. On Instagram, I'm Grant Lawrence CBC. Well, thanks so much, Grant. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 loot do. Who cancelled? Boston Dandy has blazing speed, a born big leaguer, solving a need, an effortless skater with an inborn sense, a prolific scorer on either defense, a past master at shooting and positional play, a brilliant anticipator, come what may. A defensive defenseman with poise and skill. An offensive bomber blasting bombs at will. A full-fledged general of the Harvey kind. A fuzzy-cheeked warrior with, with a hockey mind. A humble leader. A budding superstar. Mesmerizing crowds both near and far million-dollar baby, oozing with class, a slick stick handler with, with a pinpoint pass, 
an unassuming player with precision control, magnetizing pucks to get his team to roar. His every action tells a sparkling story, a sparkling story of crowning glory, of a Boston dandy so proud to skate, proud to prove that he's first rate. That Boston dandy. And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard AJ Thick with that Boston dandy. And before that, an interview with Grant Lawrence about his new book, The Lonely End of the Rink. Right now, to end the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show, gonna play something by Nouveau Cliché. Thank you for the cassette. They're from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Mr. Nouveau Cliché is. And recorded in North Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We are going to hear on and on to end the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. So thank you, Nouveau Cliché. Really appreciate you giving me this cassette. Here we go with track... On and on from the Strangers release from Nouveau Cliché on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. Beep. 